Lord, we come before you thankful that we can and realizing the only reason we can is because of what Jesus has done for us. He tore down the barrier between holy God and sinful man. Uh, he is worthy. We've been singing about him. We rejoice in him because of how he has totally changed our lives. And that was the beginning. And, and then you continue to change our lives as we go into your word. We study it. We seek to be approved workmen who use the scripture correctly. To, to grow in it. To be edified by it. To be rebuked by it. To be encouraged by it. To be changed from the inside out by it. So help us as we go into your living word today. Change us as you know we need it. And you know every, every single heart. You're the judge of every heart. And you know it. You know even our, our secret sins are in the light of your presence. So uh, use your word not only for us as a church family, but in each one of us who know you. Use it to build us up in our faith. We ask this in Christ's great name. Amen. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. And we're going to read 18 through 23. Started this passage last week. So we are in the book of Romans, walking our way through it, kind of enjoying all the details. Just really entered the forest at this point still, and we're starting to see some beautiful details of it. I'll remind you that in verses 16 and 17, Paul laid out the theme for the entire letter, which is, uh, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Whereas the power of God is the very power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. Uh, For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Just as it was written in the Old Testament in the book of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the theme of the letter, that there is a way to be right with God. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The the gospel reveals the righteousness of Christ and then reveals that to us in the sense of through faith it gets imputed on our account and we stand as not guilty any longer when we put our faith in Christ. Beautiful, beautiful uh, gospel that it is. And, and then he jumps into why we need the righteousness of God. And that's really the whole first long section in the letter, starting in Romans 1, verse 18, and it goes all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. And the, and the big word, you know, the theological word that describes this section is condemnation. People stand condemned before God. They are condemned because they are sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are sinners by virtue of being born of sinners. Adam and Eve passed their sin nature onto their children. And it's been that way ever since. Every person born in this world, a sinner by birth, by nature. And they're born by the fact that Adam's sin was imputed to their account. So he was our federal head. He acted for us. I was like, I don't like that. But you like that Jesus is our federal head, that... His one act produced righteousness for them. Yeah, I like that. But it's not fair that Adam acted. It's a, come on, can't have it both ways. Can't have your pie and eat it too, or cake and whatever it is. 
And we're sinners because we sin. We practically sin. So we are condemned before God. And that's where he begins in Romans 1, verse 18. So let's read our text. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Hmm. Sin. We deserve God's wrath because we are sinners. So last week we talked about the nature of God's wrath, the very word wrath. We might not like a lot, but it's a very important word in Scripture. And in the book of Romans, 12 times Paul uses this word in the book, speaking of God's holy wrath. That wrath, if you remember, I said it several times last week so that you'd remember it. It is as God's settled indignation towards sin. God's settled indignation toward that which violates his nature and his glory. That's what his wrath is. His holy disposition towards that which is sinful. The object of his wrath is clearly proclaimed in verse 18. It is coming against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And, and we could say, well, unrighteous and ungodly, that, that is sin. Right? It is sin. It's sin against God and it's sin against others, other people. So his, that's the object of his wrath. Sinners. <laughs> Not just sin, but sinners, right? Are the object of his wrath. They're his enemies. And, and then we explain that this text, particularly verses 18 through 20, show us that. There's a revelation that has been rejected or suppressed or hindered or held down. And that is why God's wrath is coming again against them. That is the reason. And I, I, I had the sheet for you last week. We covered six of the eight things that this text reveals about that revelation. The first of those was that it was a revelation of truth being suppressed. Right? It's a revelation of truth being suppressed. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know, and, and, and that's where we spent a lot of time looking at that last week. But let me, let me tell you, that's something that he's directly saying against pagan unbelievers. They suppress the truth that there is a God to whom they will give an account. And, and, yet, and yet, we should not think that we are not people who suppress truth as well. There's a practical side of this for us as believers, us who are in Christ, have the righteousness of Christ in our account. We still sin, right? I'm in that camp. 
I know you are too. Sometimes we suppress the truth because we want to sin or because we have sinned. So let me give you an example of that. Uh, you know, you're reading through your Bible, as you should. Every year, I encourage you, read through your Bible this year. So you're reading, and let's say that you're in Ephesians, you get to chapter 4, and you read these words. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good for edification. It's got grace for the need of the moment. It edifies the hearers. It doesn't tear them down. And you know, you know your mouth. That unwholesome words do proceed out of your mouth. That you speak words that do not edify people, that tears them down. They're unwholesome. They're ungodly. And you might think, well, yeah, yeah, I, I know the Bible says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. I guess I'd do that. But, you know, I wouldn't do that if it wasn't for other people. You know, it's because of the way they speak to me. that It never comes out of my mouth first. It comes out of their mouth. What are you doing? You're suppressing the truth. You're suppressing the truth. It's like you continue reading there and you read, uh, forgive one another, even as God and Christ has forgiven you. And how did God forgive us? Or well, he forgave us completely. How did God forgive us? He gave us immediately upon our repentance and faith. All of our sin forgiven. Thank you, God, that you forgive that way. What? I got to forgive that way? And you know, you know that you're a person who tends to hold grudges. Someone does something to you, they say something to you, and, and it goes in the bank. It, it's, in, it's in the vault to be pulled out at a later date to seek revenge, to pay them back. Say, so, yeah, but I wouldn't do that, see, if they didn't hurt me first. Suppression of truth. Forgiveness is not based upon other people doing something against you and not confessing it. No. Forgiveness is complete. It's immediate. You know, we're not holding grudges. We're not hiding anger and bitterness. Not if we're following Christ. So, truth being suppressed. Secondly, we saw it's a revelation about God. The text says, for what can be known about God? So it's, it's revelation that's very specific. Now, that statement doesn't tell us what truth about God uh, is meant, but it's going to tell us in verse 20, and it's a truth about God's nature, about his attributes, his invisible things. But it's a revelation about God. Number three, we said it's a revelation which is known or evident and plain. The text says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to them. The truth is, it's clear. It's clear. It's manifestly plain. It's not like hidden. It's not, it's not like one of those pictures that you'll see that people will try to convince you that there's a boat in. But it's just a bunch of garbly goop. 
I, I'm convinced there is no such picture in that picture. Other people will say, oh, yeah, I think I see it. I think I see it. Liar. <laughs> uh, it may be there, and I'm just not that abstract, but you get my point. This revelation is plain. It's not like you've got to... It's, it's right to understand it's plain. Number four, it's a revelation in which God chose to reveal himself to people. I highlighted the fact, you know, and that's what it says, because God has made it known to them. It's God who is the initiator in revealing himself to people. People don't seek out God. God seeks out people. In Romans 3, Paul's going to say, there is none who seek for God. No, not even one. And it was the Lord Jesus who proclaimed of his own reason for coming into the world, to seek and save the lost. God is always the initiator, and he's done this in this revelation that he's talking about. Number five, it's a revelation which has existed since the beginning. So God has never lacked this plain, clear, manifest uh, evidence. It's always been seen in, uh, since the beginning. So Adam and Eve saw it, and everyone ever since has seen it. So he takes it all the way back. It's kind of what we mentioned in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and their starry host. And, you know, all you got to do is look around and you'll see God. That's his point. Ever since the creation. Number six, it's the revelation of God's invisible attributes. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived so those things which are unseeable, his invisible things, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, those things that are unseeable can be clearly perceived, understood. They are plain when one gives careful thought to what they're looking at. And that is this, this revelation that is seen in creation, ever since the creation and again, I mentioned it's not unlike what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You don't, you don't see the Holy Spirit, but you see the effects of new birth that he brings about in a person. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of it. You see the leaves blowing or the, the snow drifting. And this is, you don't see God's invisible attributes Namely, his eternal power and his divine nature. You don't see them, but you see the effects of them. Where do you see them? In his creation. So that's number seven. It's a revelation that is known through what God has created. That's what it says at the end of that phrase. In the things that have been made. In the things that have been made. And, and this more fully uh, expresses some of the truths about God that can be seen through his creation of all things. And this is the argument, if you want to put it in these terms, it's the cosmological argument. It's the argument that matter, the existence of matter, demands a maker. That motion demands a mover. And, and that a design demands a designer. It doesn't just happen. The creation is an effect which had to have a cause, is the point. And God is that uncaused cause. 
He's the one. There was only God, and then he spoke. Right? <laughs> he spoke, and the heavens were made. He spoke, and there was light, and he spoke, and there was darkness, and he spoke, and there were animals, and, and he spoke, and there were growing vegetation. He spoke, and there was man. He spoke everything into existence. He is the uncaused cause. God created everything out of nothing. This is how the text in Genesis puts it. He didn't even have the dirt to work with. He created the dirt. So in doing so, he made all things in such a way that to conclude that it came from a giant explosion or that matter has always existed, that just doesn't make sense. Rather, the creation is the clear expression, evidence of one who is eternal and wise and powerful and orderly and intricate in detail and imaginative and good and beautiful. That's what I think is all meant in his eternal power and divine nature. You see these things by the creation that God is these things. Now let me give you an example. It's a weak example because... It comes out of something rather than out of nothing. But uh, my boys growing up, they love to play with Legos. And my grandsons like to play with Legos as well. Starts out with those big pieces, you know, about 10 pieces will put together whatever they're working on. And there's great success when they finish putting that together. But you keep on graduating, there's more pieces and more pieces. And, and now with my grandson Spencer, named after me, yes, uh, you know, he loves to do Legos. And you get the box that's, you know, huge box, and it's got hundreds and hundreds of pieces in it, and it's got a picture of what it is on it. And if he gets it, you know, as a gift, like we were down there last year for Christmas, he got some, and he took that box and he opened it up, and, you know, there's all kinds of little bags inside, but he, he opens up every one of those bags and he dumps all of those pieces onto the rug. And it looks like chaos. It is chaos. As my feet have, have determined many times. You know, it's just, it's just a jumble, right? And then he works on it. And he puts all those little pieces together. And it doesn't take them all that long. And, and it starts to take shape. And then in the end, it's like, man, that's awesome. How did you put all that together? And that's kind of like... It's obvious that there was someone who put it together. Creation, it's obvious that our God put it together. It's a revelation that is known by what God has created. And then the last one of these statements about the revelation is that it leaves all people guilty if rejected. It leaves all people guilty if rejected. The last phrase in verse 20 says, so they are without excuse. They're without excuse. It not only expresses the result of what Paul said about God making himself known, but it kind of expresses the reason that God created things. And that's the construction of the phrase is such that it stresses the purpose behind God creating everything. And Paul is saying that God has so made the universe, all that we can see, and we can see much more now than we ever used to because of 
telescopes that have been put out into space that can see so much further and with greater detail. But he's made the universe in such a way that we become responsible people. That's what it's saying. This revelation where God makes known himself to people through what he has created shows certain things about him, his eternal power and divine nature, and all of that makes us responsible before him, accountable to him. We're without excuse if we suppress that truth or we reject that truth. In fact, the Greek word translated without excuse indicates, it's kind of a legal term, and it indicated from a legal standpoint, people have been stripped of any defense for their unwillingness to believe or their suppression of the truth. Let me tell you, this actually answers the often raised question by people. What about the heathen? That's not a word that we use a lot anymore, except when we're trying to avoid the gospel. What about the heathen? You know, those people who have never heard the gospel. What about those people who don't have access to a Bible? What about all of those people, right? And I get that. But this text is saying the creation holds people responsible to believe in a God of eternal power and other attributes. And Paul doesn't address in this text the necessity of the gospel. But he rather shows that to rebel against God's self-revelation in creation is to, the, to incur the, the consequence of that rejection, that suppression of the truth. Things visible, creation, calls for a power that is invisible. The idea that matter has always existed is an impossible premise for the logical mind, because we can see in creation the law of entropy, that everything is decaying. Had to have a starting point, not forever. Had to have a starting point. The belief that behind the visible world there must exist an invisible being is far more reasonable than that. The sinner may plead ignorance, that he or she is unaware that God exists. But Paul explains that such ignorance is actually culpable. What does that mean? (laughs) It's their own fault. They know better. It's culpable ignorance. It's like, I didn't know. Yes, you did. Right? Yes, you did. God has given clear evidence of his existence through what he's created. But people have actually closed their eyes to it. Or they've hidden it. They've tried to sweep it under the carpet. They've resisted it. They've re, uh, suppressed it. And therefore, they are without excuse. One commentator puts it this way. It's quite good. Even though they have been constantly surrounded by the evidences, not only of God's existence, but also of his infinite power, adorable goodness, and incomparable wisdom, they have refused to acknowledge him as God. Instead, the sinner hinders, restrains, holds back, and suppresses the truth of God's existence, thinking that they will not be held accountable by him. If we can just pretend that he doesn't exist, we won't be held accountable by this God. They are mistaken. They are wrong. They are 
without excuse. And they will be judged, is what Paul is saying. They will be judged for their rejection of God's self-revelation of the truth about himself. God's wrath being revealed against a culture or a person, you know, it's it, it, it rejected by culture or person. It's a result of the suppression of truth that's known about God, it, it, his existence and his nature. And such people make this choice to reject God's revelation. Why? Because they want to be ruled by their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. They want to give themselves over to their sin. And Paul expresses that God's existence is, as well as certain aspects of his nature have been evident and clearly perceived by what he has created. So all that the eye can see manifestly declares something. There is a creator God and as well as all those who have been created in its, in its image will give an account for what they do with the truth that God has made known to all people. And this brings out the point that people will face the judgment of God for their sin, not because, not because of a lack of knowledge about God, but because of their knowledge of God. Did you get that? They, what about the heathen? They don't have the knowledge of God. Yes, they do. It's because they have knowledge that they will be held accountable. And it also informs us that the, the truth revealed through creation, referred to in theological terms as general revelation, that's as opposed to the specific revelation found in the Bible and in the Son of God. Well, it's rejected by, by sinners, and it is enough to condemn them. General revelation through creation is not sufficient to save anyone, is it? It's not. But it is enough to bring them under God's wrath. Nature holds people responsible to believe in a God of eternal power and purpose. And the question of how a person can be saved from wrath is not revealed in this text, but Paul is going to put it forth in the rest of the letter. And what's going to come later, simply put, is that the only way to be right with God and escape his divine wrath is to put your faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sins according to the scripture, was buried, rose again the third day according to the scripture, that he bore your sins in his body as he hung on the tree when he was crucified and that his resurrection proved that he conquered both sin and death. And we must put our faith in Jesus as the son of God and the savior if we are to escape God's ultimate and eternal wrath. So the primary question, and I ended with this last week, is have you turned? Have you turned from your sinful rebellion, your suppression of the truth, and believed and received the truth that Jesus died for your sins, that you could be forgiven and might be given the gift of eternal relationship with the true and loving God? And if you haven't, I, I urge you again, repent. Change your mind. That's what repent means. Change your mind. See the evidence for what it is. If you want to see it, God is showing it to you. He's made it plain. Just repent of that. I, you're right that you know evolution and the whole thing about uh, the Big Bang or that matters always. That doesn't make sense when I look at all the evidence. So change your mind and believe. 
God has revealed himself in creation, and God has revealed himself most clearly in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have believed and received the Lord Jesus, well, rejoice. (laughs) I think that's probably, again, most of us here, if not all of us, let's rejoice in that. That God made himself known, both in his creation and through his Son. Rejoice that you know God, that, that you know God. Not that you know about him. Not that you know about the Bible. Not that you know about Jesus, but that you know him, that you know God through faith in Jesus Christ. You've received his grace. Okay, that's the end of Sermon 1 on God's wrath. Sermon 2 starts here. All right, moving on. So God's wrath re- revealed last, this last part was, was there's a culture which suppresses truth, right? This next section of verses, 21 through 23, show the origin of idolatry. The origin of idolatry. Paul moves in his argument. Let's put it all together. Paul moves in his argument from why people need the righteousness of God through faith in Christ to the wrath of God being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of people suppressing the truth of God revealed in creation to the origin of idolatry, which is, by the way, the byproduct of the suppression of the truth. Idolatry is a byproduct of that suppressing of the truth of God's revelation. So once the truth of God is rejected, people seek to replace belief in God with something else. And that's what he's going to show. It shows us this passage, these three verses, shows a degeneration, if you will, from the truth of God's existence, as can be seen in creation, to the effects of rejecting or suppressing that truth. So once again, just so that you know, idolatry begins with the suppression of the truth that there is a God who has made himself known in creation. And that really is the first point of of verses 21, uh, 18 through 20, is the suppression of the truth. I've talked about that enough. Let's just go on to the second step in this degeneration. So it starts with suppression of the truth. Number two, not giving God what he is due. Not giving God what he is due. This is verse 21. Paul put it in these words. Even though they know God exists, they do not honor God or give him thanks. Even though they know God exists, because he's self-revealed, they do not honor God or give him thanks. Now, the, the knowing of God that he's talking about here, even though they know God, that's not the knowing of him personally and intimately, but rather the, know, the knowing that God exists that can be seen through his creation, right? Even though they know God exists, that doesn't mean they know him personally. They have experienced, you get this? They've experienced the eternal power and divine nature of God in every moment of their life's existence because they can see what God has made every moment of their life, I suppose, except for the sleeping. But maybe you're dreaming about it too. Uh, but the point is 
They know he exists. They know him in, as a creator God in that sense. But still, they do not honor him, nor do they give him thanks. Well, what does it mean to honor God? You know, even though they know him, they don't honor him, not giving God what he is due, which is honor. What does it mean to honor God? What's well, to live in such a way that he is glorified? That's what it means to honor him. The word honor refers to seeing the great value of something and living in light of it. So to honor God is to live in such a way that he's glorified. It is to prize him. It is to prize him above all other things and know that he is worthy of all that we could give to him. That's what it means to honor him. It is to give him your thoughts, your affections, uh, and the devotion that is due him. Why? Because of who he is. Because of who he is. Now, giving thanks to God, that should be the natural response. The natural response of those who recognize that they are creatures and that there is a creator, and that as creatures, they're totally dependent on the creator. Give him thanks. They ought to have recognized their indebtedness to God's goodness and his generosity, to, to have recognized him as the source of life and all good things that they enjoy in life, and so they should be grateful to him for all his benefits. One author put it this way, that these two obligations, honor, honoring God and giving him thanks, embrace the whole cycle of what is the soul's duty toward God, honoring him, giving thanks to him. But unbelievers, these pagan unbelievers who suppress the truth of God, they shut him out of what he is due. They shut him out from that. They dishonor him. They dishonor. They don't honor him. They dishonor him and do not acknowledge that he is responsible for all that they are and have. They don't give thanks to him. Well, how about us? That's the pagan unbelievers, right? How about us? Do we honor and glorify God in our lives? I mean, do we take time each day to thank God for his many benefits and blessings that he pours out on us? I mean, not just for salvation from his eternal wrath or all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, but also for the great and small things that demonstrate his goodness and, and grace. Like what? Well, like this. I just breathe. My heart's beating. What was that? I can hear. Wow, you're awesome. I can see you. I can walk. Not everyone has all of these, right? But I can walk. I have a vehicle to drive around. When I wrecked my last one, I got a new one. I have a home to live in. And it could be a you know, cabin out in the wilderness, or it could be a mansion on the hillside. It doesn't matter. That's coming from God. I have clothes to wear, which are vitally important living in Alaska, especially during the winter. I have heat that runs through pipes, hot water that runs through pipes in my house that makes it so that I'm less chilled 
although the older I get, the more chilled I seem to get, so I gotta bump up the temperature, but I can. I have food in my refrigerator, in my pantry. I have a wife who cooks it, takes care of me. I, I have so many things to thank God for. We all do. And that's what he's talking about. These people don't even, they say, there isn't a God that exists. So there is no thanks being given except to themselves. Aren't I smart? Aren't I good? You know, I, I deserve a lot of praise for, you know, doing all this. I, I take care of it all. A man's got to stand on his own two feet, you know, pull on his own two boots, whatever it is. Even all the honor is going to the person rather than to the God who created them. One of the things that we did as a family when our children were young and, and something that I, I would like to suggest for all parents or even grandparents who have young children around them and that is take some time around the dinner table or at family worship. Yes, that is something that should be practiced. And, and uh, you know, talk about what God has done for you that day. Talk about it. I mean, we wanted to teach our children that. Uh, to recognize God's work and blessing in our lives on a daily basis. And, and so we would hear such things from our kids. Oh, God helped me in my spelling test today. Or uh, God gave us nice weather so we could play outside. And I remember, you know, the older kids uh, thanking God that he helped Megan, our youngest, to learn to ride a bike. It's like, that was an eye-opener for me. I thought it was me <laughs> that taught her to ride her bike. But it was really God, and I, I was thankful for that because God may have used me, but it was God. They saw that. that God was involved in that. Kept her from hurting herself drastically, you know, from when she'd fall over, and of course she did. So, yeah, we need to be constantly seeking to honor God and and thank him. And one of the ways that we can do that is like giving thanks for him, right? That's how we honor. We give thanks to him for all he does for us. Let me suggest this is one of the reasons that we should be thanking God before we eat a meal. You know, I mean, believers generally do that. But not all seem to do that, think that that's important. I, I, I say we should do this not because... It's a rule to be followed or because we're afraid that God will make us sick if we don't. That's not the point of doing it. We give thanks before a meal because he is worthy. Because he has supplied for us all that we need for life, physical and spiritual, and godliness. He graciously is acting in our lives on a regular basis. And we are totally dependent upon him. So honor him. And give him thanks. Number three in this degeneration is empty thoughts and darkened minds or darkened hearts. Verse 21, Paul puts it this way. They become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. So instead of giving God the honor and thanks he deserves, they continue to suppress the truth and they become futile in their thinking, which means which means that they give themselves over to worthless and useless thoughts about things. That's what the word 
futile means, uh, the Greek word means, you know, it's useless, it's worthless, it has no value. They give themselves over to empty and vain thoughts and opinions. That's what the word uh, means. Dialogismos uh, is the word for dialogue. We get the word dialogue from it. But it's really talking about vain thoughts and opinions that are not worth anything. And that can be, you know, a dialogue going on in your own head. They give themselves over to that. So Paul's point is that when people or a culture reject God's revelation of himself, then their only resource is their own empty and useless speculations and reasonings. They have to make a substitution for what God has made known about himself to them with something else, and the only thing they have is their worthless speculations about where things come from, And what is the point of it all? Aren't those the big questions that people ask? Where did I come from? How did I get here? Uh, What am I here for? Those are kind of the big questions in life, right? Well, they give themselves over, he says, those that have suppressed the truth to empty thoughts and darkens hearts. So instead of recognizing God and having a vertical relationship with him, right, their minds and hearts are on a horizontal plane. Though they know enough about God through the evidence of creation, that glory and thanksgiving is due him, what do they do? They withhold it from him. Their lives are void of thanksgiving and adoration, and soon... The text says their foolish hearts are darkened. So essentially what they do is they pull down the shade to block out the light of God, the light of his revelation about himself, which was given through creation. And thus their hearts are shaded and they become more and more darkened because they lose the ability to put together the obvious connection between what they see with their eyes in creation and what they know in their hearts. You know, what God has shown them in creation is intended to change their hearts, right? Is to, to bring them before him. I'm accountable to him. I believe in him. I submit to him. I, I give myself to him. He is great. He is the only great one. Clearly, that is the point of God's demonstration of his character and his person in creation. So God's eternal power and divine nature being brought together informs every person that God is worthy of glory and honor and even the giving of thanks. The adjective foolish that is used here, foolish hearts, it comes from a Greek term. I'm going to give it to you, and there's a point to this. Asunetas. Asunetas. You don't have to try to spell that if you want, but it is A-S-U. N-E-T-O-S. And that word means being void of understanding or sensibility or insight. That's what the word foolish means here. And in contrast to that is the Greek word, not used in our text, but it's the Greek noun sunesis, S-U-N-E-S-I-S. And that word refers to bringing thoughts together and insights uh, to make a wise decision so that 
the letter A at the beginning of that first word, and both these words are the same root word, the beginning of the first word, A, makes it not. So they've lost the ability to bring thoughts and ideas together so that they can make a wise decision where insight or um, understanding comes through what God has seen. But they turn that off. Rejection of God, here's the point, it leads to the inability. The inability of bringing together the truth with the evidence that supports it. And thus, they make the foolish decision. There is no God to whom I will give an account. Seeing where idolatry is coming from begins with the suppression of the truth. Not giving God what he is due. Empty thoughts and darkened hearts. And we're going to end there today. We've got to come back next week. And we'll carry on and we'll see some more in this cycle of degeneration. question is, do you see yourself anywhere in that cycle? Are you giving God what he is due? If you're not, if you're not, could it be it's because you don't really know him? You know about him, but you don't really know him? Would you say that you're... Your thoughts, clearly, they're very humanistic. They're not really what I see in the scripture. My heart is kind of hard towards God at times. Could it be that's because you don't know him? Could it be that what's true of you is you keep suppressing the truth? Or maybe you do know him, but these things are slipping into your life. It's time to put a halt to it. It's time to put a halt to it so that God will receive the glory and honor that he is due so that we'll live a life whether it's eating or drinking or any other thing with the view that we need to bring him glory. We'll have him always in our sights. We'll be looking toward him not ourselves. I was reminded of that as I began to read Deuteronomy again today and God's warning to the children of Israel. When you get in the land, you get all those blessings, don't forget where they came from. Because if you do, you're going to start to assume that they came from yourself. And then I'll treat you just like I did all the nations which I'm driving out before you. Because in essence, you have become an idolater. Let's keep idolatry out of our lives. As John put it, flee idolatry. Let's flee it. Lord, we are thankful for your word, thankful for the gospel. All these things that we're studying about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against sin and sinners makes us so thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ, that he paid for our sins, that he rose from the dead, proving that he had conquered sin and death. And Lord, he secured for us our right relationship with you, and we're thankful. We are thankful for it. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship through some song and then time of remembrance, be glorified in our hearts, our minds, and the words that we sing. All that we do, be glorified.
Amen. Come on up, worship team.